Research for what? Hello and welcome to Research for What, the podcast that discusses scientific research, its purpose and impact. I'm your host, Ron Bouvray. Each week, I will interview recognized thought leaders who share the same passion for science and research and invest the energy, time or money. We will talk about the challenges and opportunities for research. I'm also very keen to find out how experts define impact and what methods they use to measure it. Every week, I will ask the question, research for what? In this episode, I'm going to talk with Professor Christy Muir. Christy is the CEO of the Center for Social Impact and Professor of Social Policy at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Christy has undertaken many projects with government, non-for-profits, corporate and philanthropic organizations to improve social impact. Christy is also a renowned and highly respected researcher in social sciences, and her research focuses on children, young people, families, and communities, and spans social domains such as education, employment, social participation, well-being, disability, mental health, and financial resilience. Christy, hello, and thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Ron. Thanks for having me. In today's times, uh, the pandemic is causing major global health crisis, but is also impacting all the domains that I've just mentioned. And this disruption is, of course, also economic, financial and social. Can I start by asking you how your research addresses these social challenges and why it's important to do the research that you do? The, the COVID-19 crisis is touching all of society. It's, uh, it's what I think is one of the biggest seismic shifts that we've had globally since the Second World War. And it's touching almost everything that affects people's lives in terms of their working space, where they work, where their kids, whether and where their kids are being educated. It's affecting people's incomes. It's affecting our childcare. It's affecting our, our families in ways that we probably couldn't have previously imagined. So at CSI, the research that we do looks at how we better understand complex social problems, how we solve for them, and really it's all about how do we reimagine a better, stronger future for everybody. So in regard to COVID-19, we have been releasing fact sheets almost every second day on different issues and how COVID-19 might be affecting them. So we've looked, for example, at housing affordability and homelessness and the implications of COVID-19 on our population who are already homeless and what it might mean for people who might be at risk of becoming homeless. Uh, yesterday, we released one on digital exclusion. And if you can imagine that at the moment we're being asked to work at home, we're being asked to reimagine our social connections through online and rethink about how we connect with the world through our computers, it is incredibly hard to do if you're one of the digitally excluded in this country where you don't have access to a computer, you don't have access to internet data, and you don't have access to the capability to effectively use, use computers, for example. So how do you think the research that the CSI does is going to impact our communities? How is it going to help our communities through the crisis? One of the things that we do is try and understand where we were before COVID-19. Yes. So we understand with each of those social issues that you mentioned, how society was faring and where we were at, mostly in Australia, but in some cases also looking internationally. 
at gaps, for example, in inequality around people's education levels, your opportunities to access work. We look at unemployment rates and underemployment. I already spoke about homelessness and those other social issue areas. And so we look at where were we at before COVID-19 We're looking at what's happening during COVID-19 and how that might be affecting those individual groups, but also how it's affecting structures of society and what that means for policy implications. So the types of responses that we're seeing around the world from governments, for example, the kinds of responses we're seeing from a leadership perspective, and also what it means for the structures that normally hold our society together. So, for example, our not-for-profit and charities And what does this this crisis mean for them? What does it mean for businesses and employment and how that then affects the world? And then the third piece to that puzzle is looking at after COVID-19. And so what we want to do is help to reimagine how we create a stronger, brighter future by working across sectors with those groups, government, corporates, not-for-profits, philanthropy, social enterprises, to reimagine what what we might look forward to when we come out of COVID-19 down the track. So it strikes me that the research that you do really addresses social challenges faced by some of our most vulnerable citizens. Is that by design? It is by design. And the Centre for Social Impact definitely has a, a strong focus on people who might be from particularly vulnerable groups. But we also look at uh, how we keep society strong and equitable. And, for example, in the area of financial resilience, we know that there are um, families that might actually be earning decent money, if you like, but actually who might be struggling in terms of their financial well-being. They might be struggling in terms of how they manage that money, They might be struggling around debtedness. We know that there are a lot of people who really struggle to raise $2,000 in an emergency, and they might be the people who are in fairly low-income positions. But actually, if you've got social capital and relationships with family members who can get you out of trouble, you're in a very different position to somebody who is fairly isolated and doesn't have support and resources that you might draw on. And so while we do have a focus on the most vulnerable, we look at issues that affect everybody's lives. A lot of very important research is done through crisis. A lot of research, very important research was is done during war times or infectious disease outbreaks like the one we're going through at the moment. Do we need a big crisis to do this fundamental research and help the vulnerable groups of our society? Rom, I think it's a really interesting point. And I, one of the things I've been saying is maybe this is the crisis we needed to hit a reset and to make sure that where we land after this is a society where everybody has access to safe, affordable housing, where people have equal opportunities around education and employment and can participate more fully in society. If you look at the history of war times, I'm actually a social scientist by my professorial hat, but by trade, I'm a historian. And so I've spent a lot of time looking at the history of warfare and how that has reshaped our economies, our social structures, the way that we live, the way that we work, our health systems, our culture, uh, and have really touched every aspect of people's lives. And this COVID-19 situation is going to be at that extent. And what I'm hopeful for, but also worried about, is that we we don't just look at what's going on right now in terms of this crisis response piece, 
but we're also visionary enough as leaders across our society to say, well, what might this look like when we come out the other side? We've heard lots of politicians from around the world talking about their immediate response to COVID-19. And it's interesting when you look at the different leadership styles and where we have leaders who are really courageous around planning for the future versus leaders who are just focused on the crisis. And I think it's probably everybody's responsibility across sectors to start thinking and imagining not just about how we deal with the immediacy of the chaos of the crisis, but reimagining that planning for what we might do into the future. So put simply, is that forcing us to go back to the basics, not only in terms of leadership, but also research and to study what really matters? Yeah, I think we have to study what really matters. And there's going to be really practical things that we know matters that research is well established. You know, we know the fundamental things that matter in people's lives. And we can go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs for some of those most material things. We can go back to great research that's been done around our children and young people, not just around those material things, but also, you know, those things around being loved and being safe, uh, being healthy, being able to participate in culture. And so there's been a lot of really amazing research that's been done from different disciplines around the world that we can draw on to say, what might this look like in the future? Well, us all to come out of that crisis united and is in the best possible shape. It seems to me a lot of this responsibility falls onto the researchers. Is that their job? Do you think that's fair? I think that there are. And I think researchers, I think a lot of the responsibility does fall into the researchers' laps. I think that they play a part in this ecosystem. So they don't hold all of the responsibility, but they certainly should feel some responsibility for how we recreate this in the future. And I think that what this reinforces is that the research that we do as researchers should matter for the world in some way. And when you talk to academics, often what you can uncover, even where academics are doing very theoretical work, not just empirical work, Underneath whatever the research project is are some deep fundamental values about wanting to make a contribution to society. And that contribution might be around health, it could be around engineering, it might be around culture and the arts or design. But the interesting thing when you talk to researchers and academics and you unpack why they do what they do and how they do what they do and what gets them out of bed to do that every day, there's usually something fundamental about this isn't about the research per se. It's about what we can uncover, what we can discover, and how we make a contribution to the world that's bigger than ourselves. Nonetheless, at the moment, there's major shifts into the research we're doing, in particular in, in academia. So I'm interested to hear your opinion about what we were researching before and why do we need a shift and who decides what we research on? That is a really tricky issue, Ron, because I also fundamentally believe in academic freedom. And so we have to be really careful around who gets to decide and under what circumstances. And I think we'll find through history that some of the most amazing discoveries were made at times or through projects or ideas that maybe nobody else thought were a good idea at the time or, or would have backed. And so I think we have to be really careful about how we reconstruct this. Saying that, I think we are seeing a major shift and I think we're seeing a shift in the higher education sector more broadly around academic institutions, and this isn't just about research but also about education, 
about academic institutions needing to be really relevant, really useful, and for research to be usable, and that it is no longer sort of the academics telling the world what they might find, but collaboration between academics and the world across sectors, doing some of that that work to, to work out, you know, what problems we need to solve, how we might collaborate to do it, whose voices we listen to, and how we, we make progress on those research findings. And, and sadly for me, this is a great time for places like universities to do what they're very good at, to create new knowledge, to transfer that knowledge, and potentially have a, an impact. And maybe we can talk about this. Or, or do you agree with any of these statements to start with? I do agree. The one that I'd pick up, though, is the transfer piece. And I think for a long time, universities and researchers talked about knowledge translation or knowledge transfer. And of course, we are all constantly transferring uh, and translating our knowledge. But I think one of the key things that I think we need to move forward is on the language of knowledge exchange and how we create more of a reciprocal relationship between researchers and our industry partners and the public. I'm not sure I understand correctly what you're saying, but to me, knowledge exchange is often associated with commercialization, not so much in transferring knowledge from one senior academic or from academia to students. I think maybe that's the case in some disciplines, but I would potentially disagree with you on that front, at least from the perspective or the the places that the research areas that we work in. So, for example, we might be looking at, you know, how we solve for homelessness. And one of the pieces of kind of knowledge exchange that we would incorporate into a research project will be the viewpoints of people who are homeless or were formerly homeless. We'll be looking at uh, sector leaders who work in homelessness service systems and spaces. We will be looking to government policy makers. We'd be looking to corporates who actually are driving up housing prices, how we collaborate with the the business sector, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think sometimes that exchange piece, for me, it's not just about let us write about or research homelessness in isolation from those groups, but let's think about how we exchange knowledge with those groups, still using some rigorous research methodologies. And the resulting product then already has some of those viewpoints that are deeply embedded in in our findings. It's often said that I think what you're describing is often associated with having an impact, or and, and probably this is a term that's overused today, but is that the purpose of research to transfer uh, or exchange knowledge and have an impact? And maybe we st- should start by trying to define impact. Yeah, and impact is, is a word that has become in sometimes over overused and possibly cliched, but I think the Centre for Social Impact was established 10 years ago and at the time social impact was not used uh, very often and now it's incredibly common. I think impact is really important though uh, as a concept but but we should define it. And the way that we define social impact, actually if you look at the definitions of impact, you can find a raft of them. The one that we use and tends to be most common in the social impact space is a definition that's followed by the OECD and and a bunch of others conceptually, which is really about looking at very long-term change. And social impact is looking at that change that it could be positive, it could be negative, it could be neutral, 
And it's usually the result of some kind of intervention. And that intervention could be from any kind of can any kind of approach or, or discipline or individual organization or policy, et cetera. But that that impact is all about something that's going to change over the very long term. And it's important to note that the answer doesn't have to be positive. You may find that your impact, your impact is negative. So I guess I was just going to add to, to your, your question around beyond the, the what is impact, should research have an impact? And I think that research has to matter. I think that we need to be doing research that can do something to inform the world. I think saying that not everything is going to lead to long-term positive change, for example, and we also in that need to make sure that we value the different kinds of impact produced by different disciplines. And so Everybody will notice at the moment as the world has shut down on a whole lot of sporting events, for those of us who love sports, how much that contributes to our our own leisure and enjoyment and our kind of social interactions and relationships and what we do with our time. And so, you know, for example, people that are that are studying things like sport or people that are contributing to culture or dance or design or other top forms of art is equally as important as the people that might actually be out to solve fundamental health problems. And, you know, the most uh, evident one right now is the health researchers who who can come up with a COVID-19 vaccine. It's incredibly important, Uh, as is how we solve a whole lot of other diseases in society, as is how we solve structural problems and how we have economies that can support the participation of, of society more broadly, et cetera, et cetera. Just to follow up on your point about time, changing concepts or opinions often take a lot of time. And it strikes me that often research is not given, given enough time and researchers are asked to justify what they do in a year or two or three. Uh, how do we deal with that? Yeah, time is really tricky. And the reality is, and all the researchers will know this, but it's difficult when you're working in the industry space. Research is expensive and it takes time to do it at a high quality. And and I think that it's important that we allow that time. I think one of the things that we can do to overcome that is to make sure that our structures and processes that support us as researchers enable things to happen at speed. That's one of the one of the ways to expedite things. And the other thing we can do is start to work out how we drip feed early findings, obviously the ones that we're confident in, not, not anything before we're actually ready to know conclusively what we found, but how we actually stage um, research findings. And often what we do with a lot of our projects at the Centre for Social Impact is to have multiple staging so that even if you have a very long-term project, we can be adding value along the way in with, uh, with smaller pieces of work as we progress. The research we're doing now in different fields, as we discussed, is, is shifting. Is it too late to address the current crisis? Some people have asked why we don't already have a vaccine. Why is it that we're not prepared for the crisis we have, not only in the medical field, but also in social fields? Why is it that we're not ready to face uh, mental health issues or, or the financial 
issues. Is, is the research we, we're doing now too late? How is it going to impact people who are going through the crisis now? Mm. I think it's a really important and fair question. On the COVID-19 vaccine, I mean, obviously you can't create a vaccine for a strain that you didn't know was going to exist. But I think the, the question still stands and is really pertinent and important. And I've been uh, a social scientist, at least as in since I was a historian, since 2005, and have been looking into complex social problems since then. And over those 15 years, you know, I feel like that we've been in this furious fight for social policy and social change and calling out those issues around mental health, the inequalities in the world, the fact that we haven't made social progress. In Australia, for example, we've had almost 30 years of unprecedented economic growth. So that's measured by GDP. And so we saw that happening and it's it's actually a world record. It's quite um, ridiculous and incredible that we had that economic growth. But when we compare that economic growth to the social and environmental progress that we've made as a nation, it's appalling and they do not marry up. You can take a particular state like Western Australia that has done really well at a state level from an economic perspective because of the mining boom, et cetera, and that's been one of the states that's consistently fared, you know, seventh or eighth in terms of how they've progressed. And I'm not picking just on WA. It's a, it's an issue for us nationally. And so I think that there's a lot of research that goes on a lot of the a lot of the time. And sometimes until there's a crisis, it feels like it's very hard to create traction. And what's really interesting watching the COVID-19 responses is we're seeing fundamental shifts in government policy that we have been fighting for for a long, long time. And that's not just in Australia, it's also around the world. And interestingly, the you know, one of the things that our Prime Minister said just today in the press conference about having free childcare to our essential workers was that this is temporary. We, all of these policy changes around employment benefits, et cetera, are going to go back to as they were prior to this COVID-19 scenario when it's all over. And I think it would be a great travesty if we didn't stop to capture the research that we've got in different disciplines uh, around the world to say, well, what would society look like if we're in this opportunity where we did restructure? Because what this has shown us is that we can do this quite quickly. And it's remarkable how when there is political will, when there is urgency, we can respond and react and we can find the money and the willpower to create the changes that we need to see to respond. And so what it demonstrates is is that we can do this. We just need to make sure that we are planning for it, we're pausing to pick up the research and that we're doing that from a really informed way, not just a, a very quick reactive response that isn't really thinking about the evidence that we know can inform our future. How do we we make sure that we learn our lessons? Uh, Well, the researcher in me and the historian in me, Ron, would say we need to start collecting this data right now and we need to be thinking critically and analysing it. And so I feel like we're in this unique moment in time and that if all we're doing is responding to the, the crisis with that rush of what do we do tomorrow as opposed to how do we step back and lift our gaze and think really big picture about what's happening and why it's happening and take some time to do that critiquing, then then we're, we're going to struggle to that how do we learn from history. 
what I think the historians will absolutely do will be in the future to look back on this and do a whole lot of critical analysis around what's happened, why it's happened, how it's happened, how the structure of our health systems, the structure of our economies, our political systems, et cetera, were not necessarily set up to deal with this. And I think maybe in part we've had, you know, we've we've got uh, generations that actually haven't experienced significant difficulty, at least in the developed world. Certainly this isn't the case in the developing world in some of their lifetimes. It is also a fact that this particular crisis is global. It's a, it's a global health crisis, global financial crisis, it's a global social crisis. Everyone is affected. And there are many shifts and many groups rushing to do different research. Is that really collaborative? How do we make sure we are not wasting resources and we are all working together? Mm. I think that's a tricky balance because... We definitely want collaboration and we want to make sure that we bring together our best brains trust, people who can think differently, who might be from across disciplines or across institutions uh, and different parts of the world. We know that when we bring together different people with different thought patterns, we can be really innovative and create change. So I'm a really big proponent of collaboration. Saying that, we also know that sometimes if you actually work independently, you can have multiple people working on a similar problem at the same time and it's almost a race to get the best answer. And I think in a way sometimes we can actually have balance between those two things. On the global level, it's this, you know, this is a global pandemic and a global crisis. But I think one of the other things that I want to say is the interesting thing about this global pandemic and the response to it is that it's because it's affected the developed world as well as the developing world that we have seen such urgency in, in how we respond. And we have no choice but to respond. But I think it's also worth pointing out that You know, we have kids that have been dying of poverty in developing countries and malaria and from lack of sanitation and, you know, poor nutrition for a very long time. And so it's interesting that when we have uh, these crises that also affect the developed world, we get this urgency to respond. And we've seen this ramp up around uh, researchers responding to it. We obviously have researchers who have been working for a lot of years in the developing world, but I think we can't lose sight of some of those other problems that we also have in society. So I think that's very interesting because I can see, you know, a word that's being used now is saving lives, but it's, it's also save, saving um, livelihoods. And I'm always surprised by how much researchers need to justify their work. And sometimes the justification is around the number of lives saved, but Mm. um, it's almost as if researchers will work on saving livelihoods or improving livelihoods and well-being, second-class citizens of researchers. Uh, Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting observation. And often that justification is about you know, those those really big things, saving lives. The other one that we see a lot of is, well, what's the return on investment of that? How much money right. are we going to save? And I think what both these things speaks to is what we actually value. And what I would hope to see is, is that we start to see more research and more funding for research in things that people fundamentally value in their lives that goes beyond 
the economic dollar value that we might otherwise see. Something I see with the younger generations of researchers is very high values, the desire to wanting to make an impact, to change the world, to make it better. Is that something you see as well? Yeah, and I'm, you know what? I'm so hopeful and excited by that generation of young researchers. And we see that in our undergrads as well. So the Centre of Social Impact has a, a course for first years that is for anyone taking any degree to pick up if they choose on creating social change. We have the most incredible numbers of students from all different disciplines who pick up that course because they want to make a contribution to the world. And whether they, they aim to be the next best engineer in the future or sit around board tables, whatever career they want to make for themselves, I, I'm amazed at how many of our younger generation actually are really strongly holding that social responsibility piece. And we see that play, we, we saw that being played out already from a, a climate change perspective. But I think you can look at it in all sorts of different social health and, and other issue areas as well. It's really strong. It's really positive. And I think they're the generation of researchers that are going to go off and do amazing things. Also, I think what's interesting there is that they they want to, to make a difference. Uh, they're not asked to make a difference. It, there's no incentives for them to make a difference, which is not necessarily what happens in more experienced, more established professions. Yeah. I'm a little bit more of an optimist on that front. I think that academic institutions have been set up, and this is just because of our history, you know, they're archaic cultures. And if you think about how things like promotions being established, et cetera, uh, a lot of it has been about how does the individual thrive and prove that they're the ones that have made the difference and they're the ones that should be promoted as opposed to how you've contributed to the collective. We've started to see that shift with promotion criteria at universities like UNSW, and we're starting to see shifts in other parts of the world. You know, I'm lucky enough at CSI to work with some incredible business leaders, uh, some of whom sit on and or chair boards of, of companies that do incredibly well, who have an enormous social conscience and who want to understand what they can do in their role in society to make the world a, a better place. So I'm a little bit more optimistic. So on the academic, old school academic front, I think that stripped behind all of that individualization of academics, there's often is, if you ask them, why are you really here and not working in another industry there's usually some strong value, like I said earlier, around how do I make a contribution to whatever field it is that I might be in. And then similarly, I think there are a lot of people and we, we work and educate a lot of people across all different sectors in the social change space. And I'm constantly inspired by how many people are around who really do want to make a difference to the world and take that seed of whatever that looks like in whatever industry they're in and think about how that might work. You said you are working with different people outside of academic research. And I think it's very important to work with non-for-profit organizations, corporate organizations, governments. So who are the people you work with to take your research out and have an impact? Because CSI believes that everyone has a role to play, one of our sort of methodological approaches we use is systems thinking. And we have a fundamental belief that if we're solving problems, we need to better understand the problems that we're solving for. We need to understand where the key levers might be from a research perspective 
around what it is that you need to do and who the agents are that you'd need to activate to pull those levers to create the change and then to work with people around well, if this is the case, what is their particular role, whether that's at an individual level or, or an organisation level or a sector level? And then the final question is, well, what difference is this actually making? And often the premise of who we work with and how we work with sits around those fundamental questions. You know, what problem are we solving? What are the primary levers that we need to understand that would need to be pulled by who? And, and then to get real clarity about that role. And depending on what those answers to those questions are will depend on who we aim to work with and in what way and how we help set boundaries around what different people's roles are so that when we collaborate or bring people together to collaborate for change, we're bringing the right parties together, we're collaborating with shared purpose and we can be clear when the work needs to be done alone and then when the work needs to be done together. So to give you a couple of examples, we have a project called the Constellation Project, which is working on homelessness. We have a, we on that particular project, we're collaborating with PricewaterhouseCoopers, Mission Australia, the Australian Red Cross, and the Centre for Social Impact are the founding partners around that. But we work with hundreds of others, individuals and organisations around how do we actually increase the supply of affordable housing, because that is one of the big levers for change if we're going to address homelessness into the future. And what would be some of the changes that we would recommend around pathways and journeys so that we can marry up the right home to the right person at the right time? A second example is we're collaborating with a lot of people around how we improve financial wellbeing. And Thinking about that and how finances affect people's lives, you obviously need to collaborate with a whole host of individuals. There are enormous numbers of financial institutions and financial services, of course, your, your banks, but also if you think about it, you know, superannuation firms and insurance firms, and we would work and partner with not-for-profits who are supporting our most vulnerable, we'd be looking at inclusive finance sort of options and responses. We'd be working with government around their role in this. And so you can kind of understand as, as we unpack those different problems and we think about which bits of it do we need to solve and who do we bring in, that's the piece that then determines how we identify who those partners might be. And maybe just a, a last question and to try and finish on a positive note, we, we talked about a shift to things that really matter. If we get that right, what should we be looking for uh, forward to once the, the crisis has, is, has passed? Oh, is mental I... health going to be better? Are people going to learn? What are the lessons people are going to learn? Are we going to be better off? I would hope that society is better off overall. I'm hopeful for, I would love it if, if everybody had a right to stable, safe housing. I think it would be wonderful if we had a way. Mental health is always going to be an issue that we need to address. I would love it if we had a way to seriously decrease the burden of mental illness, to put better supports in place so people can equitably have that. I would love for the society to ensure that our kids all feel loved and safe and have access to the really material basics in their life. It would be wonderful if we could create a future where our environment was protected and thriving. It would be great if we could create a future where all of society had access to the amazing education opportunities 
that we can provide and opportunities to participate in work as well as opportunities to participate socially and make sure that people feel included and can belong and be part of of a society for whatever their potential might be. At the moment with COVID-19, I think we're in a position where sometimes it feels like it's out of our control and there's so much going on and changing every day and there are new rules and regulations and changes and we can't necessarily control what might be happening. I think given that, it's really important to remember that we are not just witnesses in what is going on with COVID-19 right now, but we're also actors and every one of us can help control and determine what happens today and tomorrow and into the future. And we should take that responsibility on uh, with a whole lot of seriousness. Right. I I saw the video you posted recently on this. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So we all have to play a little role at at least. We can all do something. We can all contribute to that. And I think the important thing about that is it doesn't matter how small it is because I think that the key thing and even like the lesson for the kids, you know, at a time when, and if you look at research on resilience, we know that one of the protective factors is just getting back a little bit of control. And sometimes that that is just about routine. And when things go horribly wrong in people's lives, you know, if you have a family member who might be dying, we know the research shows in resilience, you know, that's not the time to cancel celebrating someone's birthday. You know, you sit around and you have a cake anyway. It doesn't mean you're not sad, but it's those things that if we can protect the things that matter and do some things that we can control, it actually, it will help help in terms of future big picture outcomes. So I think that sense of, you know, there are some things we can control is, is a really important message. Otherwise, it's just hopelessness. Great, Christy. I don't want to take a lot more time, but I just wanted to thank you so much for discussing with me today. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about uh, very important concepts. Thank you very much again. No worries, Ron. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Research for What. To connect and find more information about this episode, check out researchforwhat.com. Until next week. Research for What. <laughs>